Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Today's episode of The Audible is brought to you by Trader Joe's, a national chain of neighborhood grocery stores where you can run a naked bootleg to score delicious food at great prices. From mac and cheese balls to mini balls of meat, you'll always end up with a touchdown. Learn more at TraderJoe's.com and at Trader Joe's on Instagram. Welcome to the Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman, who was in, uh, who was at the Michigan Purdue game this past weekend. And Bruce, I hope you didn't have to spend any time in the godforsaken visitors' locker room. I I did not, fortunately. I was around it uh, pregame for a while. Most of the Michigan staff was out of it. And Jim Harbaugh went off about it on Monday morning. He did. I got to admit, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, some of the challenges there. Um, the facilities wise for the visitors in this case, how it came up initially was, uh, as people know, Wilton Spate got hurt early in the game and was, there was no x-ray facility there. So they had to take him a few blocks away, which I was like, oh, that seems unusual. And then was told we had to, uh, basically Harbaugh put his team on the bus for pregame because it was, as somebody told me on the staff, he said it was it was over ninety degrees during the game. I mean, it was steamy hot. But on top of that, in the inside, it felt like it was over one ten. So it was just one of the myriad of things that Michigan was not happy about with the uh, the visiting facilities, which is a little ironic. Maybe it's not ironic, but um, because Purdue has gone in the midst of this massive facilities upgrade, and you know, have the biggest football only weight room I've ever seen, and have a lot of nice stuff, but. Right now, it's uh, I don't know if it's in the spirit of gamesmanship or that's the last thing they're going to renovate. But he's right; it does look like it's from like about a hundred years ago. I, I'm guessing, yeah. I don't think it's gamesmanship. Their former AD Morgan Burke was known as one of the most what's the word like frugal? I guess spend that might be putting it kind. You spend thrift exactly. ADs in the whole industry, so it wouldn't surprise me if that just never made it onto the budget. I uh, I, I do regret picking Purdue to win that game. Michigan handled them in the second half. They did, and, but they uh, were Purdue was leading going into the third quarter. Uh, similar story, you know. David Blau, their quarterback, had told told us before the game. He showed me the text message he had sent to all their players, which was basically scoreboard shots of them leading really good teams going into the third quarter. He said, "Look, this is if anyone doubts whether we can hang with Big Blue, here's your proof. We can. We just need to play hard for for sixty minutes." Well, you know, eventually. I think that they just got outgunned. And, and what hurt them was the leader of their defense, uh, John Thienem in a safety, he got thrown out of the game for targeting. And then like a few minutes later, their best linebacker, Juwan Bentley, also got thrown out. And I think from that point on, it was really downhill for uh, the Michigan offense. John O'Corn, and this is what I wanted to ask you, he came in, looked very, very sharp, especially as the game went on. In the second half, he was terrific. They really exploited their, you know, the matchups with tight ends. Knowing what you know, do you think John O'Corn should be the quarterback going forward? That he, you know, whether injured or not, John O'Corn is a better answer right now than Wilton Spate. It's hard to. It's always hard to know whether that was a one-time thing that was based on that particular matchup, or if he really is the better answer going forward. I mean, there's got to be a reason he hasn't beaten out Spate to this point because I know I don't know but I get the sense Harbaugh has never been fully confident in Wilton Spate and would have loved for John O'Corn to beat him out and he just didn't do it and so there must be a reason behind that but sometimes you know they you, you just can't tell from practice sometimes it's just what happens when they get into the game so I would think you got to give it a shot because it was not working very well with Wilton Spate as the quarterback so you know I guess 
if he's hurt, I mean, it sounds like he might be out for a little bit. So there might not be a decision for him to make. But if there is, I think you got to give it a shot. Yeah, like I said, he looked good. He, I mean, he does some, some more things. I think he's a little, uh, probably a little more athletic um, than than Spate. And afterwards, it was interesting to hear him. You know, I talked to him for the post game. He was it was a very emotional day for him because on the other sideline was Tony Levine, who was the former Houston head coach, who was his head coach when he was real successful. Ended up benching him, and Greg Ward Jr. basically beat him out, and that was it for him. And so he said, you know, they hugged it out, and they're. You know, he said it was burying the hatchet, but he said that was the one game all year he was looking forward to. And Michigan really needed him because they were, you know, they were in a, in a battle. And Purdue, I think, has, you know, if I was a Purdue fan, I'd be excited about the future because Jeff Brom is a great offensive coach. I mean, just some of the, you know, innovative play calls. And he's just so creative with misdirection and different things. He had Don Brown's defense you know, on its heels for a little bit, but then ultimately they're just so talented and so well coached. I think, you know, they just kind of ended up wearing them down. Well, as riveting as that Michigan-Purdue game was, I feel like there's some others from the past weekend we should probably talk about, and we're going to do it with a great guest. It's our friend Joe Tessitore from ESPN. Okay, before we get to our guest, it is the great Joe Tessitore. Yeah, I called Joe on Friday night, and this is how odd our relationship is now. I called him to talk about the Michigan kickoff man uh, who's really really good but he's a kickoff man so you know how often are you going to like dig into that and so we started talking about that and I said Joe where are you and he was like well I'm going to be in Athens but I'm not right now and we will get into more about Joe's wild weekend shortly but uh, Stu what do you say we get to our guest let's do it we are pleased now to be joined by one of our all-time favorite guests friend of the audible ESPN's Joe Tessitore. You can see him this Saturday night calling the Alabama Ole Miss game. He was at the Georgia uh, beatdown of Mississippi State this past week. But, Joe, I'm wondering if we can take you out of the SEC to start off here. To us, well, You did do a Penn State game earlier this season, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we did the Pitt game. Yeah. To I'm, me the, I'm thrilled to be back, by the way, oh, on, yeah. on the podcast. You know how quickly I texted both of you when <laughs> it, was, it was brought back to life. Welcome to the Audible 2.0, my friend. Exactly. Happy to be here. Um, okay, so Saturday night, I really think that even though Saquon Barkley has been on the national stage for you know going on three seasons now, for whatever reason, this was a real eye-opening moment for a lot of people. It was a tight game. It went down to the last play. And he went for 358 all-purpose yards and a bunch of highlights as a Heisman guy. And you are our mm. Heisman guy. Was this that kind of – I've talked to you in the past where guys need a Heisman moment. Was this that? Yeah. Yes, it, it was. The, you know, I always say when it comes to the Heisman, it just has to feel a little magical. It has to have uh, the candidate, the guy who's the clear-cut front runner, or the guy who's going to win it has to have that it factor. That's something that just feels like it's the perfect cross-section that you cut through and you see it in him. And it's that meeting point of where his life is, where the moment in time is, where his team is, how the season's setting up, and he feels different than everybody else. That's how I feel about Saquon Barkley. Now, you know, I spent some time at practice a few weeks ago. I was at one of his games. We all got caught up into what happened at the end of last season. But he just feels like he's got that something special right now. Now, what stunned me and Todd Blackledge and I got done with our game and then we're watching, you know, our whole crew is together and we're watching the end of of the Penn State-Iowa game is I really wanted him to touch the ball with the game right on the line on those final four plays inside the 10-yard line. That was like, it kind of stunned me some of the play calls there and it was magical. But his performance the other day, was just superb, and it feels like what a Heisman season is supposed to feel like. Can I say something? I'm glad you put it that way because in some ways to me it was kind of fitting that on that great final play, Trace McSorley's pass, uh, it is set up by Saquon Barkley stoning the linebacker in, mm-hmm. in, in, you know, in protection. Josie Jewell, it, no less, the All-American. I, you know, I think it shows – how versatile and how great Saquon Barkley is. He is a great running back with a, you know, 
taking handoffs and getting the, getting it that way. He's a great receiver. Uh, he's what is he practically leading the Big Ten and receiving. He is doing everything, and I think so. When you see him, you know, in, in the off season, we all made a big deal about what a freaky athlete he is. But I think it's his work ethic and all the other things he does that make him above and beyond. I mean, I'm watching that game and seeing the stuff he's doing, and I'm thinking, okay, who's the second best player? Because to me, there's no comparison. Like you could put. You know, right now, Baker Mayfield's number two on my Heisman list. I thought what he did going into, you know, the shoe and lighten up Ohio State was impressive. But I feel like the gap between Baker Mayfield and all the other quarterbacks isn't very, you know, it's, it's basically like two interceptions away from being the same thing. Whereas to me, you know, going into the year, you had Darius Geis and Saquon and maybe some people would throw Royce Freeman. But there's no comparison. I mean, but the difference between him and every other running back to me seems like it's a gulf right now as opposed to, you know, it's like Saquon and the quarterbacks. When you look at it, Joe, just in terms of, you know, studying the landscape and, you know, we've had some big time running backs in the past few years and some, you know, phenomenal seasons, certainly, even though he didn't win it, Christian McCaffrey would put in that. Uh, what context are you looking at Barkley now in, in terms of, beyond, let's not even just say Heisman, I'm not saying he's won it because, you know, a lot can happen between now and then, but in terms of, where you see him as a storyline compared to maybe some other great running backs of the last 15, 20 years. Before you answer oh, that, Joe, you before ahead. you answer that, can I pause for a second? Is yeah. somebody doing the dishes or has a dog, taking a dog out? And then we got a lot of background noise from somebody. Not me. There is a dog barking, but he, he's a couple rooms away, Stu. But if you'd like me to like throw a, a steak in that room <laughs> for the sake of the podcast. I, no, I the more, the more I heard dishes. Anyway, just this thing, I guess it picks up everything. It picks up everything. Yeah. yeah. It picks up everything. Okay. It's amazing technology. Sorry. It was uh, easier when we just had the rotary phone. But, you know, I could throw <laughs> some ground beef in the room over there and shut him up. I mean, he only weighs 10 pounds. Uh, All right. Is, well, is the clarity good at this point? The clarity is great. I'm glad we cleared that up. And uh, that was a great question Bruce asked. Go for it. It is. I'm running back of recent Heismans. Listen, I think, I think to your point, and I think it started bubbling up this summer and I'm surprised that it took the first month of the college football season for us to confirm what some people were already saying people were talking about the Heisman race this summer and yet making the point well Saquon Barkley's the best player in college football but yet they were framing the Heisman race differently than having that conversation I, I don't think there's any doubt he's the best college football player that doesn't always equate to who wins the Heisman trophy I mean we, we've seen that time and time again. I mean, there's been many times and Dominican Sue was the, was the best player in college football one year. You know, I mean, it was, there, there's been that many times in terms of running backs that have won it recently, you know, obviously you have the typical, the formula of the Alabama running back who's leading the team in rushing is among the national leaders in rushing and they're on their way to a national title. This is much different than that. And this that guy, and that different. Alabama player usually, most people think he's not even the best player on his team. Correct. So the Mark Ingram, Derek Henry type example doesn't apply here. We Nobody was feeling that Mark Ingram or Derek Henry were the best players in college football. Saquon Barkley feels special. It, it, he feels magical, like the type of college player that we look at generationally. We say, oh, he was one of the best that ever played. He was, remember those years, no matter what happens as a pro. We won't define him based on what happens as a pro. I like the way things set up for him, but you also, we've talked about this every time you guys have had me on to talk about recent Heisman voting trends. We also have seen where when you're the front runner early and when you get put up on that pedestal, then the one loss tears you down so badly. So I think what happens at Ohio State is going to be critical for his season. Bruce, I gotta, I gotta take a umbrage with one thing you said though. You talked about that there's a massive gap at the running back position. There's a guy in my backyard, Bryce Love, who's averaging 197 yards a game. <laughs> Stu, I'm going to stop. There's a guy in San Diego. 10.8 yards per carry. Stu, I'm going to stop. What do you want him right to do? Here. I want him to not do it against UCLA's defense. How about that? He's done it against two teams in the top 25 right now, USC and San Diego State. Now they lost those games. So it may be that a, a guy that's averaging 10.8 yards per carry for a 2-2 two and two team is just, I mean, Joe, is that a deal breaker? If they were 4-0, yes. I would think he'd be at yeah, the top no, of everybody's not, list. 
No, I mean, well, why aren't you talking about uh, Penny at San Diego State then? He's, he's great too. too. He's great too. I, I had him on my um, ballot that we do for the All American last week. I had Penny on there. This week, I replaced him with Love. I, I, I just don't know how you. I mean, everybody's like, "Oh, what are they going to do without Christian McCaffrey?" I think McCaffrey? this is this Silicon guy's Valley bias right here, Joe. This is what's going on. I think it is. I think that's exactly what it is. Joe, There's no help, doubt about help it. Help me out here. Ten point eight yards per carry. What, what is he? Chop liver. No, no, he's it's not. Phenomenal. It's you know, it's 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 tremendous. But you know, I mean, obviously, I just mentioned Penny. I mean, they they played against each other two weeks ago, did they not? They did, and Penny's team won. Correct. Yeah, Penny deserves uh, all the love as well. But I also feel like you guys have just uh, two weeks ago it was Baker Mayfield planting the flag in the ground, and he he's the best player in college football, and and they have one close call against Baylor, and now we're barely mentioning him. No, I, th- I think Mayfield is right there in the conversation. I think it's those two. But I think that's – when you say best player in college football, forget Heisman, forget quarterback. It, it, Saquon Barkley is the best player in college football. I mean, he just, he just is. I mean, when, you, when you're around this guy and you just – everything about him, his presence, what he can physically do. I mean, that stop and start move he did the other night in open space in about a millisecond, that's absurd. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's just, that's snake charming. That's toying with people. He does things physically that are insane. I mean, his, his ability as a receiver to get past people and to, and to wiggle free and to be explosive, his tiptoeing on the sideline the other night. I mean, he's not just statistically what he is and the leader of, of a national content, title contending team. He's doing things within plays that are physically beyond what you see other people capable of doing. Well, in the hurdle, the play that that with the ridiculous hurdle that everybody obviously has focused on, you know, what was amazing to me about that is once he got done hurdling the guy, he didn't have the first down yet. He had to keep going, and he did. Right. Um, that's one of the more, you know, jaw dropping plays you're going to see. Hey, hey uh, let me interject here. Go back to to uh, I know I don't know if Mike Eubanks is puppeteering Stu right now, Joe, but indulge me, indulge Stu here. Um, so how much do you think, because, I, again, I think what Bryce Love has done has been really, really impressive. I don't want to crap all over it because of the man crush myself and everybody in college right. football seems to have with Saquon Barkley right now. But how much do you think that uh, Love's challenges are that, you know, he played San Diego State. It was a game a lot of people didn't see on TV. The UCLA game, I mean, I, I stayed up till 2.30 on the, you know, Purdue time to basically watch the end of that game. Uh, Nobody saw that, that game. Yeah, no one's watching these games. Yeah, it's no, that's just a fact. I mean, that's when we go back to the Toby Gerhardt campaign of 2009, the Andrew Luck campaign of 2010 and 2011, the complaints of the Christian McCaffrey campaign of 2015. I mean, that that is a common refrain, and there's truth to it. That that game had no traction the other night. It was not part of the national narrative and the buzz. It was for guys like us who stayed up really late and get up really early and read through every box score and watch every highlight and DVR college football final. It's our crowd. The national crowd, the regular mainstream sports fans, are consuming Baker Mayfield and Saquon Barkley. And them losing two games early you know, makes it yes. even more likely that they're, I mean, that just kind of reduced the possibility that they're going to get that 8 p.m. ABC slot anytime soon. Um, no doubt. No doubt. Joe, you, you're a big Gary Patterson fan, right? Oh, I, was, I texted with Coach this morning. I talked to him yesterday myself. Why do we keep overlooking him in, in the Horn Frogs? Nobody's, we have eight writers at the All-American who do picks every week, and all of them picked Oklahoma State, myself included. And they go and they render uh, Mason Rudolph mortal. And Kenny Hill looks phenomenal. He looks so much different than he did in the past. Mm-hmm. Is this, are they now the, threat, the biggest threat to Oklahoma in that conference? You would have to consider them so. You know, I mean, Coach always does a great job of, of it seems like he's been, the recent trend of, of once they got to the Big 12 is it like there's always like a cycle up a reset and then a cycle up, right? And and defensively he does that and then making sure he's got he's got speed in the right places. But I mean, they just look very, very fast. They're executing. And to your point, Kenny Hill um seems so much more in control and mature and managing things well. And Anderson was running the ball incredibly well 
the other day. I mean, incredibly well. And they've got guys who are just dangerous. I mean, John D.R. looks looks like a defensive end going up and fighting for balls. You know, Turpin is as dangerous a slot guy and return guy as you're going to see. And then up until Oklahoma State, you know, played with that ridiculous sense of urgency to try to close into the game. The defense was doing their job. And I don't know how you can say that against Oklahoma State's offense. So, yeah, they're really dangerous. Well, I think some of that had to do, and I can speak from, you know, firsthand on this. My real skepticism on how they would do in this match was just our crew did that game last year in Fort Worth, and they got, you know, dominated. Just it wasn't even close. It was the worst butt-whipping I'd, I'd seen of any of the games I've done. And then to see what he was able to do and the, the adjustments he made, I think is, you know, it's another reminder why he's such a great coach. I don't think we can say, you know, I don't think it's it has to be mutually exclusive. You know, he can be, you know, not have a great team all the time and still, you know, we can we can respect what he does scheme wise and everything. Um, well, I'm curious, Joe, you had you had the uh, Georgia Mississippi State game. Mm-hmm. So a week ago this time, everybody's talking about Dan Mullen and how great Mississippi State and Nick Fitzgerald is. It's a homecoming game for for Nick Fitzgerald. And then Georgia absolutely just beats the heck out of them. You were there up close. Um, yes. What impressed you the most about Kirby Smart's team? Uh, a few things. I mean, first of all, we all felt they had probably the best linebacking crew in the country. Those are four human missiles. I mean, they are so ridiculously fast. They are very, very good and, and very good both running to the ball of putting licks on guys. I mean, Roquan Smith was damaging Fitzgerald every time there was any RPO. And then the guys off the edge. I mean, 17 and 7, Bellamy and Carter are as good as you're going to see. They they got heat-seeking missiles that are doing damage on every single play. The other thing that impressed me is the so you have that already as your base. You know the depth you have at running back as your base. But then the young talent now, they've been recruiting really, really well, but the young talent is hitting the field, and it's showing up, and it's making a difference. Then you add in the fact that Mississippi State is not built to play from behind. They are, they are not built for the hole that they instantly got themselves into. I thought the play call right out of the gate from Cheney was great. You know, the flea flicker, 59-yard touchdown, get them in a spot where they don't feel comfortable. Then you get a three and out. Then you come down the field, with, and you get the heavy dose now of Chubb, and at 14 nothing, it's just that's just not Mississippi State's game right now. They just they're not, yes, very they have a nice productive running back. They have an outstanding athlete at quarterback, but they want to control, stay on schedule, and play a game where it's on their terms. That was never on their terms the other night. Obviously, with Kirby Smart, the the model has been Alabama and Nick Saban and turning Georgia into not an exact replica, but very similar to that program. When you watch that Georgia defense like you're talking about with the great linebackers, does it feel like a vintage Kirby Smart Alabama defense? It feels like it's headed in that, in that direction. Uh, undoubtedly, it's headed in that direction. And I think, you know, there's it, they're not fully there yet, but a few are. Um, but that is undoubtedly where it's headed. And when you look through – the past couple of recruiting classes, you, you can see that coming a mile away. Guys, I'm curious. So much of the talk up till this point has been, who's the second best team in the SEC? There's, you know, talk about a golf with Saquon Barkley and other running backs. It was like a golf between Alabama and everybody else. Well, now it surely feels like Georgia. Oh, by the way, that win at Notre Dame looks a little bit better too. A lot um, better. That, yeah. that Notre Dame offense they, You know rolling. what they held them to, to rushing that day? What was it, 73 yards? Yeah, it's basically minus like 480 yards less than what Notre Dame had the next week. Correct. Uh, uh, but so now that we've seen Georgia flex its muscle, who would you say would be the next best team? Is it Auburn? I mean, it's a, it seems like there's just a lot of issues all over the mm. place still. Yeah. No, Stu, what do you think? It's either Mississippi State or Auburn, and – the thing about Auburn, everybody wanted to dismiss them because the offense was struggling, but very quietly, they are putting up a heck of a defense. Probably the best Auburn defense in a long time, and that's going to keep you in any game. By the way, the thing about Mississippi State, let's give some more context. Uh, Syracuse went into Baton Rouge and gave LSU all yes, they, they can did. handle. So, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure. Maybe... I don't know about all they can handle, but it was a closer game. Stu, it was, the game was down to the wire. 
Well, that was all they could handle. So basically, LSU, who you were singing the praises of on this podcast not long ago, now you're saying they're not that good. I wasn't saying they. I wasn't even saying that they were a top five team or anything, Stu. You had them in your top ten. I did at one point. I had Mississippi State in my top ten. They just lost by thirty. I just think that the, after, I, I, I think Mississippi Alabama, State may be yeah. the next best. I, th- I think Mississippi State and Auburn may be on their own little plane, but I think it's Alabama in their own universe. I think it's Georgia as clearly the second best team, the best team in the East, a team who will continue to m- emerge. And because if the freshman quarterback keeps getting more and more comfortable, they'll be able if they play their A game and Bama plays their you know, B-plus game to have an SEC title game that's worthy of all of our attention, then I think there's a gap to Auburn and Mississippi State, and then I think there's a gap to a, a boatload of teams. Florida's an interesting team because they they just, and I wrote about this on Monday, they always just seem so underwhelming, especially with the quarterbacks. Jim McElwain, though, you know, so two straight weeks, they win in, you know, uh, just a bizarre circumstance at the end. Jim McElwain is now 15-3 and three in the SEC games. 15-3. and three. And yet, I don't think anybody thinks of them as a kind of program that's gone 15-3. and three. Yeah, I agree. How when much you watched the end of that Kentucky game? Did Kentucky lose the game or did Florida win it? Kentucky lost that game. How much of that 15-3 you think is diffused a little bit just because – the, the respect factor for the for the SEC East is so has plummeted so far. Mm. Definitely, a lot. definitely, yeah, a good amount. And then and, what happened in the championship and games? In the championship games and out of so here's the crazy thing: fifteen and three in the SEC, and this is regular season, not SEC championship games. Six and six in the in his non conference and bowl games. You don't see that very often, where the team is more successful in the conference than out of conference. They do play Florida State every year. They played Michigan this year. But they also get their regular couple cupcakes in the non-conference as well. Yeah, and I would say that during the stretch of SEC dominance, that number would never be that way, ever. Yeah, Your non-conference and your bowl, it was always even the middle-of-the-road SEC teams that were barely getting into a bowl were winning bowls, dominating bowls, and having great non-conference records. You would never... Forget a team that's winning a division back to back years with that in comp in league record, you know, with with that mark out of the league. You'd never hey, see it. hey, Stu. Since we got Joe on the on the podcast, and he's he's uh, too modest to bring this up. Do you know how he spent his Friday night last week before the Georgia game? I assume just in his hotel room prepping for the game. He might have been doing that at one point, mm. but he <laughs> was all the way on the other end of the country doing Friday night fights in Tucson, Arizona, and did a red eye, which you know, I told some of our TV crew that it boggled my mind that he could, you know, be able to do that, basically do it on minimal sleep, all the, you know, people get talk about get exhausted from the travel, and then jump into a big Saturday night game. So I ask you, Joe, um, <laughs> is it worth it? Are you crazy that you were able yeah, to Yeah, it, it was worth through? it, but I'll, t- <laughs> but I'll tell you, and and my wife will attest to this. So I, I did get home and, you know, Saturday night after, well, the two, on, on Friday night, and I said this to you when we talked the air, Dave Bruce, we had two world title fights on top ring boxing on ESPN that were so phenomenal. And the backstories attached to them were so good. I mean, I, w- I was thrilled to have to go through that with that travel last week. We had phenomenal, great backstories on those two fights and both fights delivered. Now, the first punch of the main event of the featherweight title fight wasn't thrown until 12.31 a.m. Eastern time. And I'm sitting there looking at my watch saying they got a driver waiting to bring me up to the Phoenix airport to fly me to Charlotte to have another driver waiting to drive me to Athens, Georgia, to walk into a production meeting at 11 a.m. Eastern. It's 12.31 a.m. and they haven't thrown the first punch of the featherweight title fight, and I'm scheduled to be at an 11 a.m. production meeting in Georgia. And somehow, with all the great drivers and great producers, that happened. We pulled that off. So it was a lot of fun. But yesterday, my wife you know, made this great dinner, and Bruce, you know I like my red wine. Opened up a couple, couple bottles of red wine. The kids had some of their friends over. We had a great time. Drank a, I drank a little red wine, maybe a little too much red wine. And by about 7.30 last night, 
I was out. I mean, I was done. Toast to wake up very early to my espresso <laughs> and get working on the week ahead. That's, uh, I mean, first of all, that is classic, classic Joe Tess. Uh, that's, you live for those kind of crazy trips. I do. I I, I'm going to have you recount one now, and we probably, you probably have done this on the Audible before. This may be uh, old news to some listeners, but we have a lot of li- new listeners since the last time you probably told it. The one yeah. that will always stand out to me, the one that I wrote about way back when I did that SI feature, the one that involves the New Year's Eve motorcycle stunt and the bowl game. Take us through that itinerary. Oh, man. That, that was, that's multi-layers. Multi-layers. I, you know, um, that was a, one of our New Year's Eve stunt spectaculars on ESPN in San Diego. And I think I had done the bowl game in or a bowl game somewhere. The front end is a bowl game somewhere. Fly to San Diego with the motorcycle jump in San Diego. Beat the clock with a guy with a golf cart driving me through the revelers, waiting for an SUV on a street corner to race me to a red eye that I made as they're closing the door to fly cross-country to Washington, D.C., to a connection that I barely made to get to Orlando, to have a driver waiting for me there and change into a suit that they had waiting for me there to get into the car to make it to the bowl game, which I believe I want to say was Nebraska, South Carolina. It was one of the games in Orlando. I think it was Nebraska, South Carolina. That sounds like it was, was the Citrus Bowl one year, if I believe um, but yeah, that was cutting it very close. But we've had a few of those. We've had a few of those. All right, Joe. Before- I thought you were referencing the RG three beating Oklahoma in the last second when I did Iowa. I did Iowa State Oklahoma State the night before because that was a fly through the night too. Well, that was your that was an epic run of uh, that was when you were going through your epic run of upsets. That was fun. It's always worth it though. Listen, when you do what we do for a living and you have these great moments, it's always fun. Before we let you go, Joe, I'm going to ask you the best meal you have had. Uh, in the past month on the mm. road since uh, the season started is what? Tupelo, Mississippi. The night before we did LSU, Mississippi State, we had to drive an hour north to the birthplace of who? Wright Thompson? I don't know. <laughs> Elvis Presley. However, ah, okay. It was Wright Thompson who texted Todd Blackledge to say, here's where you need to go. And it was Kermit's. Outlaw Kitchen, Kermit's Outlaw Kitchen, with a giant sign of a raccoon holding a shotgun on the door. (laughs) So right away, you know it's going to be good. And the food was excellent. They had some, like, mesquite and hickory smoked grill going on. We had incredible appetizers where they did these home-cut french fries over pulled shredded beef and a whole fried country egg that you broke into it over the top. Todd and I had pork tenderloin with some amazing grits with a mustard sauce. And then they brought out a wood platter that was this big hunk of wood with all different desserts on it. And we were sitting outside on the sidewalk in Tupelo with Holly Rowe, Phil Dean, our producer, Scotty Johnson, our director, with fans going by talking some ball. One guy smoking a cigar off to the side, a Mississippi State fan. We just had a blast. Well, now I'm hungry. KOK, Kermit's Outlaw Kitchen, if you're ever going through Tupelo, Mississippi. Now I'm hungry. I bet you they could make some money selling T-shirts with that raccoon. And I, I may go online and look for that. <laughs> <right now. laughs> Bruce, where are you this week? Uh, I am, well, first I go to Oklahoma. We're doing a... Uh, a sit down with Baker Mayfield for a feature. And then I go from there to East Lansing. We have Iowa, Michigan state, the game, which probably would have, would have looked a little better if, mm-hmm. uh, if Iowa could have been able to, to hang on to win. But um, I'm curious to see how they respond and bounce back. Actually both teams, cause Michigan state, you know, they, they move the ball better than Notre Dame, but they, they had a lot of mistakes and uh, we'll see how they, uh, if they, especially after last year, where things just went went off the rails. Hey, Stu, can I just give? Can I just say something? I know you're a big executive now, running a <laughs> major media brand, the All American. Number one, I want to congratulate you on the site. I absolutely love it. The email that I get, it takes me away instantly. I'm clicking. I'm reading articles. I just the All American is phenomenal. Um, 
Thank you. You're, I've said this for years. You're, you're just you're such a great asset to our sport, and it's it's wonderful that you have this in your control of it editorially. Um, Vanini's ten most interesting stats of every week. Huge fan. Huge fan. Oh, you just made his year. Seriously, let him know that. I absolutely love it. Big big fan. Phenomenal. It, it's it's a quick read. It's a fun read. It always gives me something that I haven't heard yet, some new perspective. And, um, uh, you know, Alabama hasn't turned the ball over in its last 30 quarters, is, is, was quickly spread to my production crew upon reading um, this morning. So, well done. Thank you very much, Joe. That means a lot. Obviously, you, uh, you know, you're, you're a very discerning college football customer and uh, happy to have you as a happy subscriber. Oh, yeah. Yep. It's great. Good stuff. All right, hey, Joe. Joe, tell us how hey, people Bruce, can. You're pretty good too. You're pretty Thank good you, too, Joe. writer. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Tell us how you're people okay. can follow you. On, people can follow you on social media, since we know you're yeah. very. Yeah, you. How people it. can follow me on social media? Yeah. Please. They. they, they the can. answer is they can't. No, yeah. They cannot follow him on social media, and you know, hey, that adds to the allure. But uh, Bruce, can, if if Twitter would like to pay me, I'd be happy to give you my thoughts. Until then, I only give them to great friends like the two of you on a podcast. Well, we feel honored. Believe me, Joe, Joe there has never been a better time to not be on Twitter <laughs> than right now. <laughs> yeah. I promise hey, you that. Hey, I read everything. I tweet nothing. I'm on there. I'm only reading. Lurking. It's like Wanstead. You and Wanstead are the same way. Yep. He's lurking. You can catch Joe on, the, <laughs> on yeah. the Alabama Ole Miss broadcast this week. As always, Joe, thanks for coming on the Audible. All right, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Joe. All right. Well, we would be remiss if we didn't continue our new, extremely popular segment, and that is our weekly shout-outs. You want me to go first? I do want you to go first this time. All right. I'm going to give my shout-out to a coach who I've known for quite a while, and I think you have too, going back to his days at Oregon, and that is Scott Frost. He took over a UCF program that went winless the year before he got there, took them to a bowl game last year, and now they look like they have, I mean, they went up and and just crushed Maryland. They look like they have it in them to possibly make a run and possibly win that conference. Yes, and there could be a good chance he may parlay it into the Nebraska job. I mean, that's what everybody's going to assume. Um, but right now they don't have an ID, um, and we're gonna. That's gonna come up here in a little bit on the podcast. But first, well, who is your shout out? My shout out is for the Texas Tech defense. Yes. So David Gibbs, much maligned group. They've been god awful the last you know bunch of years. They were instrumental in beating Houston on the road. Houston's a pretty good team. Beat them twenty seven twenty four. Dakota Allen, their junior linebacker, becomes the Big 12 Defensive Player of the Week. It's the first time that uh, Texas Tech has had a Defensive Player of the Year earn those honors in two years. I was looking at some numbers. Texas Tech's defense is now in the top 50 in yards per, fewest yards per play allowed. That's not bad, considering they were 126th last year and 122nd the year before. Also, here's an amazing thing to me. And I granted, the schedule is only going to get harder from here forward, and you're going to see some even better offenses. But they are tied for fewest plays of 30 yards allowed in the entire country. They've only allowed one through three games. Last year, they allowed 44 such plays. So hats off to uh, David Gibbs' crew. What do you say we, for the first time in a couple of weeks, dig into our emails that come into the pod at gmail.com? Sounds good. So Derek Johnson is a bit of a prophet. He emailed us on September 18th with a question that, well, I'll just read it to you. This was last uh, Monday, okay? Stu and Bruce, if Nebraska fires their AD, Sean Eichhorst, in the next few weeks, how long will it take them to find a new AD? Nebraska is in this weird space where the AD and football coach could both get fired, and if they fire Eichhorst on October 1st, I'm afraid they can't get a new AD in time to make a decision on Riley. Well... It turns out they fired him two days after he sent this email. So where does Nebraska go from here in terms of getting an AD in place and possibly in place to make a decision on Mike Riley? Everything I'd heard was that there's a lot of people there who want Trev Alberts, former Nebraska star, who is now the AD at University of Nebraska. Former CNNSI college He mentored you a little bit, didn't he? Did? Well, I wouldn't know about mentored, but I, 
when I just started out, one of my jobs was to basically ghostwrite a weekly Trev Alberts column. Okay. So do you guys still talk? We do not, but if he becomes the AD at Nebraska, I'll probably be calling. <laughs> okay. It's funny because uh, to this day, I'm sure it's a completely outdated number. I've just never deleted it. To this day, I think he's the first person that shows up on my contacts because of his name in the alphabet, where it is alphabetically. Uh-huh. Very good. Um, yeah, and I, my guess is that they want to go all in on the old home vibe and bring Scott Frost there. And obviously him, his team smoking Maryland last weekend certainly only boosts his stock that much more. And, uh, I, you know, like that could be a very interesting fit. But uh, let's, give, let's give Mike Riley. Mike Riley's still the head coach. He's a really good head coach. He proved that, you know, winning as much as he did with less in the Pac-12. So let's see what he can do. I mean, it's a tough road left. They have, they have uh, I think, seven games left and – or I'm sorry, eight games left – Three of them are against teams that are ranked in the top 11, uh, Ohio State, Penn State, and Wisconsin. So good luck to him. My guess is he may have to win. I think he probably has to go at least – if he goes six and two the rest of the way, even that might not be enough. Yeah, I think it's uh, looking increasingly unlikely. But you do – it is tough, you know. I remember when Texas – didn't they hire Steve Patterson, you know, and I feel like the first thing he had to do his first week on the job was uh, fire Mac Brown. Yeah, and obviously that didn't turn out too well having that AD in there either. So. But then Michigan ended up hiring Jim Har- Michigan's interim AD ended up hiring Jim Harbaugh. Worst reputation, Steve Patterson or Steve Peterson? Um, good question. Steve Peterson wore out his welcome at two different schools. And I'm not saying just in Dave Wanstead's mind. I'm saying just generally as a... Yeah, he wore out his welcome at two different schools, but... Uh, Steve Patterson, I just think it was such a high-profile and spectacular flameout. But didn't I see he resurfaced again? He just these guys can't not get great job. He resurfaced. He is a sports executive yet again. Did you see that? Do you remember where that was? I don't. I don't remember. And, and in fear of pop-ups, I'm afraid to even Google it there right now while we're taping. I will Google it. This shows you how little you and I follow hockey. Uh, Steve Patterson is now the team president and CEO of the Arizona Coyotes. Well, in fairness, that probably shows how little the Arizona Coyotes follow <laughs> college football. So, I mean, he's now been an ex- an, a team executive in the NBA, in the NHL, and in major college athletics. How does this happen? I don't know. There's plenty of people who fail upwards and, and, and linger in, in our line of work, so it doesn't surprise me that it happens in other lines of work. So... Mentioned Florida, obviously, with, with Tess, but this is something I had not noticed. Credit to James Birdsong, who says, Hey, Bruce and Stu, I stumbled across something interesting today. Florida is tied for 83rd in total defense, allowing 405 yards per game. Sorting by total offense, this has come at the hands of the 71st, 87th, and 103rd ranked teams in Michigan, Tennessee, and Kentucky. Looking at this upcoming schedule, and bearing in mind the current suspension, suspensions, I think it's entirely possible Florida could go three and five or worse the rest of the way, making matters worse. Six of the remaining eight games are at home. I'm not sure why that makes it worse. Am I crazy to think this? So you think of them as always having a great defense, and that has not been the case so far. Yeah, I mean, you know, like like you guys, you were just saying the three and five. Like when I looked at at Florida going into this weekend, I thought they were looking like a six and six team. But I would have thought they would have lost these other two games that they found. I picked actually Kentucky to, to end the streak. Um, you know, McElwain finds a way to win. I think his record, I want to say, is like seven and one in games decided by a touchdown or less. It might even be nine and one. It's it's some crazy number, and they just find a way to get it done. But you know, look as it looks like they're going to face a lot tougher teams, but. You know, I don't know. It's it's just going to be an interesting year there with all this with all this off the field stuff hovering over the program as well. Jerry Swider, with all the influence television has on college sports scheduling, how do you explain this coming Saturday's lack of compelling matchups? Why couldn't the TV networks work with the Power Five conferences to each schedule at least one game with potential national interest? I don't think at this point in the season you can really plan that out. I mean, we're now in conference play. And it is what it is. You know, it's teams 
you know, I haven't looked at it in depth, but I'm sure there are games that look great on paper going into the season. And, and you know, one of the biggest games of the weekend is Miami at Duke. Who would have guessed that? Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point. It's just, you know, it's almost like the Notre Dame schedule every year. It's like people look at it one way, and then all of a sudden what it turns out to be at the end, it's almost like the complete opposite. You know, it's just it's just really hard to project how good a team is going to be. I mean, you know, two weeks ago, if you had told me what I, what people thought of NC State compared to now, it just it just shifts in a hurry. You know, same thing with, you know, Maryland's the opposite. Maryland looked really good in the opening week against uh, against Texas on the road, and then they get blown out by UCF, and now they're playing their third string, have to play to the third string quarterback because of injuries to the two stars. It's just sometimes crazy stuff happens. Yeah, and but I will say, have you noticed, and maybe you don't because you're now out doing a game every week regardless, but I haven't traveled to a game since week one because, you know, if I'm going to travel, it's going to be for kind of a blockbuster game. You're talking about national media not going to as many games? We could get into that if you want. I was just talking more specifically. Every year, the schedule plays out a little bit differently, and it's just that week two was really awesome. That was, There were a lot going There were so many good games that week that I didn't want to go cover one just because I didn't want to miss the others. But yeah, it seems like we're now into a three-week period. And look, the last two weeks have been great. College football never disappoints. But no, we, we haven't had a you know like a huge. Uh, I guess people, some people thought Clemson, Louisville would be that, but just a huge game between two top ten team kind of thing. Clemson, Virginia Tech is close this week, but not quite. And we might not have one for another couple weeks after this. Yeah, well, look, we've said this repeatedly. Usually, these are the times when you get the best, the best action, and the and the most entertaining wild games is when people expect it the least. So that's what we love. One of the things we love about the sport. So just enjoy the wild ride and not worry about too much of uh, of the hype building it up. Clint asked us, going back a little ways here, after the Memphis UCLA game, is Memphis the Houston of this year, or is UCLA that bad? I mean, I think we, we do know now that UCLA is that bad. Uh, yeah, UCLA is really bad on defense. I don't think UCLA is that bad on offense. I mean, clearly Rosen's a terrific quarterback. He has pretty good receivers. And Soso Jamabo actually ran the ball better than he probably ever has yeah, he did. in college. So, But it's all think- on Rosen. And there was a shot at the end, toward the end of the game, he threw a, I mean, it was pretty much out of reach anyway, but he threw the interception that, that sealed it. And he went to the bench and just looked so dejected and like, if you're reading a kid's mind, it was almost like, what am I doing here? Like, how did, how did it get this bad? I think Rosen had, you know, like sometimes people make the comparison between he and Jay Cutler. The one thing they have a similarity is, and because the TV crew kept on going back to that shot of Rosen on the bench, he has a little of Cutler face where it was almost like he just looks, you know, like depressed or he looks upset a lot. Yeah. You know, just facial expression. Antonio Bryant, the great pit receiver, had that too. Where it was just like the default expression, just kind of, unless they were smiling, looked kind of dour, and I think that kind of fed into it. But their 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 defense is so bad right now, and it's even worse without Jalen Phillips, their terrific young defensive end. I mean, they just, and I, I know they're pretty banged up, but God, I mean, it's been the way A and M ran on them the first half, and then obviously Memphis's offense lit them up, and then last week Stanford, you know, KJ Costello looked like he should be the answer after the way he played and obviously the way they ran the ball all over him. As I'm going through these emails, somebody asked a question that we clearly aren't going to answer about Fox's TV football strategy and they don't get great ratings. Uh, Just for the record, Bruce does still work for Fox. Yeah, and we actually got uh, our Texas-USC game got, you know, was the had the biggest rating of any game that day. Like last week or week, you know, week before, or I guess nine days ago now. So it's it's heavy on the matchups. Yeah, it's heavy on the matchups, and and it's also heavy on when those games run. There was we did a game that between two unranked opponents, Nebraska, Oregon, our crew, and that game got I want to say over two and a half million people watched it. So it's just it depends on when the game is, and then what what's around it. Also. I think by season's end, you know, after. Michigan, Ohio State, and Bedlam, Bedlam. is on yeah. Fox. I think by the end of the year, you know, these TV networks, they love to send out their press releases. I have a feeling they're going to be sending out a press release that their ratings for the season were up some exponential amount. Doesn't mean they'll necessarily be higher than ESPN's, but they'll be up pretty well, I just I just think having the Big Ten is going to be a big difference for Fox just because 
you know, I, I haven't seen the number of our Michigan Purdue game, but our, our Ohio State Army game, I mean, it's Army, which is not going to, you know, draw a ton of viewers, but Ohio State, I mean, you're, that, you're doing a couple million people for those. So anytime you put Michigan or, or Ohio State, not, not just the combination, or even, even throw Penn State on there, people, they have a huge following, and that's a very, very passionate fan base that's going to tune in, and those, that's where your numbers jump up. Our last question, this is a good one. You're going to like this one. Eric Miller. Many current coaches got into coaching when the pay was much lower. Has the increased pay changed coaching? Which, you know, could mean any number of things. Are, are, are more people now trying to get into coaching because they see those huge salaries that the, you know, the best of the best eventually make? Or does that seem so remote that it wouldn't even be your think thought so. process? I don't think so. You know, because... If you're getting into coaching because you think that some guy is making, you know, four million dollars a year, the fr- the percentage of people, like every year I go to the the AFCA, the American Football Coaches Association, there's like ten thousand guys there. The fraction of people that make what I would consider a really good living, you know, is very small related to that, and that doesn't even include all the guys who are trying to get to, you know, like just to get their foot in the door. And if you think about some of these people, I have a, a good friend. I, I did this story last year um, when we were at FoxSports.com. Brian Yager, he was a disciple of, of Rob Ryan. He was a GA at Oklahoma State and then coached at Columbia. He actually ended up getting out of coaching because he was at a, a lower level of co- football. And he was like, you know what? It's hard to pay my bills this way. You know, he ended up making a lot more money doing something else. And I think there's a lot of people who look at it going, um, you know, it's a, it's a grind of a lifestyle. You know, I know a lot of coaches whose families don't even live with them because the coaches are like, hey, I'm not sure where I'm going to be a year from now. Or you can't get rid of a house. It's just I, just, I just don't think the logistics of what it really is, if anyone thinks it through, I don't think they look at it and go, well, uh, you know, uh, Dan Mullen's making four and a half million dollars, so I want to go do that. Do you think people see it that way? Do you think some coaches, like for instance, uh, some people have said, "Oh, Ole Miss is never going to be able to get a good coach. Why would you want to go there?" And I'll always say, "Because they're going to pay you four million dollars a year." Like, do you think coaches are now willing to take a job they wouldn't have taken in a previous generation? Because hey, if it doesn't work out, you're still going to get paid enough to. Uh, take care of your family for many, many years. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's probably something to that. My guess is, you know, what what Baylor was willing to do for Matt Rule might have been more than what Oregon was willing to do for Matt Rule. You know, and I'm not sure it's like money is the deciding factor for everybody. But and I don't know if it's you know was a deciding factor for Matt Rule because uh, you know uh, Leach told me one a long time ago, and it's not like Leach is a big big money guy, I mean, relative to other coaches, but he said, you know, they pay you what you, what they think you're worth and what they're committed to you. Meaning, so if they're not going to pay you that much on the front end, you got to be cautious about what are they going to invest in the, in your staff or into your program on the back end or not even on the back end of that. So I think that's a, that's something to keep in mind. It's more than just, Hey, school X is paying this guy $4.2 million Okay, they are, but what else are they committed to the program? Are they just paying a fortune for the head coach, and that's it? Or are they paying the staff? Are they are they committed to having you know x amount of tutors for the for, you know academic support people? Are they committed to to these other things facility wise? Right. There's a lot more goes into it than I think people see. Chris Peterson talked to me a lot about that when I was there in the spring. You know, he was so careful and selective about where he eventually left Boise State for. And now he just signed a big – the reason that we were talking about is he had just signed that big extension, uh, I want to say maybe a week before that. And he was saying how, you know, he thinks a lot of guys – you know, it's such a hurried process, right? They fire the coach and then they want the next guy in place as soon as possible. And you don't have much time to deliberate. And he said he thinks a lot of guys rush into these situations and they think – because from the outside, oh, it looks, it looks great. It's a big powerhouse school, blah, blah, blah. And you don't know what it really is like. Once you get the job in terms of the administration, uh, making sure everything is, is aligned the way you would want. So he was very adamant that Washington, he had done all the research. Washington was a place that, by all accounts, had all their ducks in a row, and it has turned out exactly like that. But I mean, there's a 
there's a so many things the fans don't even necessarily think about or wouldn't even know about. Stu, I think there's so many place for them to be successful. Yeah, I actually think there's so many things that we in the media don't even know. Oh yeah, get. I mean, maybe there's a handful of people who cover their beat, so you know, like have been on it for a while and know everybody involved, but. You know, sometimes I'll have some conversations with with coaches I know, and usually it's off the record stuff where they will start filling in the blanks, and it's like oh, I had no idea about those things. You know, and, and they're they're often unique to the school they were at, so you might not never know it unless you work there. And even if you work there and you are not con- connected to the head coach or somebody high up in the athletic department, you might not know. I mean, let's just start listing some off. Just off the top of my head, these are less obvious things than how much are they going to pay the assistant coaches. Admissions, you know, are do, is there a um, you know is it well understood what it's going to take for your recruits to get into school, or are you going to get you know surprised when all of a sudden this guy who you offered, oh by the way, no, we, you were wrong, he can't get into school. Well, also that's a sliding scale with that too. I had heard that you know at USC they were called presidentials, which were like quote special ad- admits, and there were, and I'm not just saying it was like anybody off the street, but it was relative to you know, what their, what their admissions were for, for regular students plus athletes. But for some of those presidentials, may, the number of how many you're allowed might increase by how much you start winning. Uh, I had heard this similar thing happened at Notre Dame when Lou Holtz with the admissions got to be a little more uh, flexible for him. You know, and these are from people who worked at those schools would, you know, kind of have, have kind of talked anecdotally about those individual things. And it's, it's not just that. It's also what, can, you know, like how much support and what they can do to keep them in the schools and everything like that and what the flexibility is. I think those things often change and there's, there can be a sliding scale depending on how much the coach wins or doesn't win or who's his, who the bosses are. And let's think of some other, I mean, training table, nutrition, training staff, uh, you know, injuries. We saw that with Kevin Wilson where that blew up at Indiana and more some others. You know, I think it could be everything. Scheduling is a big issue. Your old friend Houston Nutt, I used to have these conversations with him when we worked together at CBS, and we would talk about a school, you know, like this is when he was out, and, and you know, would you consider this job or whatever? And I remember one in particular job, he, we were talking about non-conference schedule. And, you know, his expressions were always priceless because you get the Houston Nutt fast head shake. It's almost like the, the 11-year-old boy who's like, no, I'm not eating that for dinner kind of thing. Um, but he was, you know, he was pretty really honest about it, and not, and not just him. I, you know, I've had these conversations with other coaches about how you want to set up your non-conference schedule, who you want to play, because it does matter. And I mean, you know, hats off if you're Nick Saban, you're going to be the you're going to be the the favorite team no matter who you play. Obviously, you'd be more favored if you play uh, Southern Utah than if you play USC. But still, I think there's a lot of coaches who want to have more say in in scheduling and who who's on their schedule and who they don't have to play. So all of this was a long way, you know, we, we went on, on a little bit of a tangent there, but I think it was useful. But back to the original question, no, we don't think that the exponential rise in salaries has affected very much who goes into coaching, and we don't necessarily think it's even affecting very much which jobs guys are taking because they know there's so much more to it than what is the school going to pay me in salary. Agreed. You got any more you're going to throw at me? Or are we? Uh... No, that was the. That's the end of our rapid fire mailbag. Before we go, we do want to mention uh, somebody who was very important to the Audible over the last year or so, and that's Lindsay Fulton. She was our producer uh, after Teddy left Fox. She took over the, as our producer there, and then when we went on our own here, um, she was very helpful to me in so many uh, things that we had to check off in order to get this thing up and running and the new way we record. Anyway, congrats to Lindsay. She has left for greener pastures. She is uh, now at NFL Network. She's going to be moving into your backyard there in L.A., uh, producing their podcast, which is consistently very, very highly rated on iTunes. So congratulations to her. We wish her well. Yes, Lindsay. You'll be missed, um, but hopefully we'll we'll, – Keep an eye on what your work is as we go forward. And if you're listening to this episode right now, it means that our new producer, Nick Fink, produced the episode. So we will thank him in advance for his work on this one. You got anything else? I don't. I don't. I'm, uh, I'm pretty exhausted from this past weekend. So. No, I thought you were going to say I'm pretty exhausted from, this, from talking to you for the last hour. Well, that too. That too. All right. Well, here's a few more things before we go. 
If you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. If you enjoy college football podcasts, also subscribe to The All-American Podcast with Nicole Auerbach, Max Olson, and Chantel Jennings. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our intro song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. Download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow Bruce on Twitter at Bruce Feldman CFB. Follow me, Stu, at SL Mandel. And subscribe to The All-American if you haven't done so already at theathletic.com slash all-american. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.